0: Will you please pray with me? Now, O Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I wonder who or what is forming you, you know? What is forming you? We're all being formed by something, whether we like it or not, or whether we believe it or not, or whether we realize it or not, something is shaping us and forming us, whether it's our parents, perhaps in our early years, maybe our siblings, maybe our friends, Perhaps the mass media, you can think of different kinds of things. Different things are having an influence on us and shaping us and forming us. I remember as a teenager, I held very different convictions to the ones that I do today. And I think much of that was not down to my parents who were seeking to shape me and raise me as a young believer in Christ, but more with the things that I was allowing to shape myself as a teen. Maybe you were the same way as well. There were all kinds of different things I believed. I think I was very much a product of the British media, of the media culture of that time. Well, I was um, reading about an experiment that took place uh, a few years back by a lady called Ruth Berinda. And the experiment was like this. Uh, This lady and her associates carried out an interesting experiment with teenagers, which was designed to show how a person handled group pressure. And the plan was pretty simple. They brought groups of 10 adolescents into a room for a test. So those are basically teenagers. And subsequently, each group of 10 was instructed to raise their hands when the teacher pointed to the longest line on three separate charts. They would see this chart up there. That'd be the longest line. The teacher would then say, which one is the longest line? Well, what one person in the group out of these 10, just one of them, one person didn't know was that nine of the others in the room had been instructed ahead of time to vote for the second longest line, not the longest line. Regardless of the instructions they heard, once they were all together in the group, the nine were not to vote for the longest line, but rather to vote for the second to longest line. The experiment began with nine teen- teenagers voting for the wrong line. The stooge would typically glance around as they all voted for the wrong one, the second one, and then they would sort of frown in confusion a little bit and slip their hand up with the group rather than going the longest line. The instructions were repeated over, and the next card was raised, and time after time, the self-conscious stooge would sit there saying, "A short line is longer than a long line," simply because they lacked the courage to challenge the group of nine around them. This remarkable conformity occurred in about 75% of cases and was true of small children and high school students as well. Berenda concluded that some people had rather be president than right, which is certainly an accurate assessment. Maybe you know the phrase. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? We are all formed in some way, and sometimes peer pressure is something that gets to us. We're scared of what the crowd might think of us if they know what we believe about something or if we act out on that belief as well. Well, We're in the middle of a sermon series called The Call, and we're looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And what we have seen is that to be a disciple is to be someone who chooses to follow Jesus, to be someone who chooses to be formed by Jesus, and to be someone who also chooses to fulfill his mission. That He calls us to. It's not one or the other. It's not a couple of those things. It's all three of those things. Last week, John Burwell came and preached, which was wonderful to see him. And he talked about following Jesus. And he talked about the wilderness experience, didn't he? How many people want to get out there and have the wilderness experience. But actually, once they taste the wilderness experience of camping in some place, some remote place, they start to realize, you know, I really don't want that. I wish I had some small luxuries. But he said that often the discipleship journey is like that. Following Jesus is more like the wilderness experience than it is like going glamping, right? (laughs) Much more like that. Well, this week we're called to be formed. What we see is we're called to be formed by Jesus for his kingdom's sake. You and I are called to be formed by Jesus for his kingdom's sake. He wants to use us for his purposes and therefore he wants to shape us so we can be molded and used for them. And what we'll see is that following Jesus Christ is not the end of discipleship. Choosing to follow him, raising his hand and saying, yes, I will follow you. I repent of my sins and I, I choose that. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote this. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. This is the beginning, friends. God has more for us. So let's turn to our scripture sheets and we'll begin with our passage from the New Testament, <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. It's a pretty well-known Verse You may or may not have heard it, um, but it's a a great passage in the midst of Romans, an epistle by Paul. And what we see here is that you and I are not the first people to struggle with this issue of conforming to how God would have us live rather than how the world would have us live. Paul's writing to the church in Rome probably around about AD 57, somewhere around about then, late 50s, about 25 years after Jesus' uh, death, resurrection, and ascension. And he's writing to this church, this fledgling church, in this city of about a million people. It's a huge city in terms of the world, a million people there, and all kinds of different things going on in this city. In fact, Rome is known for its decadence. It's known for its spiritual immorality. It's known for the brutal practices of... um, of the arena. And it's known for its sexual immorality of all kinds. And also it's influenced by Greek myths. It's influenced by emperor worship. And so there are all kinds of different religions and gods at work and at play in Rome. But Christians, well, they proclaim only one God. They're monotheistic. And so they stand out already because of that. And they're under threat already because of that. And they stand out because they choose not to indulge in some of the practices of these other religions or the pagans around them. They stand out. And because of that, they are very unpopular, very unpopular. If that sounds familiar. Our culture itself is pretty pluralistic, isn't it? We would say in the midst of what we might hear is that there are many paths to God. There are many different ways to live your life. And Paul would challenge that. And into this context, Paul writes Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And he says this. Follow along with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's expectation and hope is that these disciples of Jesus Christ living in the midst of this culture in Rome, this difficult place, will not conform to the ways of the culture around them. The Greek word used here for conform is, means to conform oneself, one's mind, one's character to another pattern, another way of living, to fashion oneself according to this way. And that would mean for them that they're not to sleep around. They're not to have many partners. They're not to uh, worship other gods. They're not to be indulging in those things. And they're not to be a violent people as they see in the the games and the arena around them. These are what Paul would call childish and misguided ways to live. They're not the ways of Jesus and the ways of God. And Paul wants them to grow up. He wants them to be formed and he wants them to become not just spiritual children, but he wants them to become spiritual adults, parents even, who are raising up other disciples. And in order to do this, they need to be formed by God. They need to be transformed by the renewal of their minds, as Paul puts it, so that they will be able to help others along the way. And the same is true for you and me today. We need to be transformed. We need to be conformed to God's will. God wants the same for us in order that you and I can make disciples also, in order that we can follow him more closely and help others do the same. But how do we do this? Well, look at Psalm 1, our second or our first reading, actually, our Old Testament one. It's a very famous psalm. It sets the tone for the whole of psalms and perhaps is really what the psalms are all about. And I think much of what we need in order to understand how to be conformed and how to be transformed is contained in this short yet very important psalm. Look at verse one. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The psalm is anticipating what Jesus Christ will have to say about there being two ways to live. The psalmist sets it up in verses one and then verse four. And he's saying that there's the broad road of destruction versus the narrow way, just as Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter seven. Psalm one, the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. That's what it's talking about. Two different ways that you can live your life. No middle ground as perhaps the Christians might've been trying to do in Rome. And what does the righteous person do instead? Well, listen to verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the way of the righteous. Whether we are simply reading God's word each day, spending time, in his word. Whether we are listening to God's word, be it someone reading it to us or listening to it perhaps in your car as you drive along. Whether we are singing it because the songs that we sing, that Stan sings, that Kristen sings and uh, that we sing together are songs mostly based completely on scripture. Whether we sing those songs to ourselves, whether we listen to that music of them being sung, whether we read about the Bible, whether we create art to do with God's word, whether we memorize God's word or just simply talk about it in small groups. These are ways that we meditate on God's words, be it in our homes, be it in our life groups. This is what God calls us to do if we want to be people who are on the narrow way and living righteous lives. It must saturate our very lives. Now, I don't know how many of you are joggers. Any joggers out there? Or as Will Ferrell likes to call it, jogging. I have taken up the sport of yogging. Um, But um, it's something that Melissa and I have been doing a bit more of since January. We decided we wanted to do this um, couch to 5K, right, where they have this app and it helps you get from couch, sitting on the couch, watching too much Netflix, to actually doing a 5K in the ridiculous heat of the summer. And so uh, we've been doing that. We did it with our kids for a while. They kind of gave up, Uh, but that's okay. (laughs) No judgment on them. Uh, And then Melissa and I have kept going with it. And at the beginning, it was pretty easy because, you know, you'd jog a mile or so, maybe a mile and a half. You'd take breaks for about five minutes where you'd walk along. and go, This is pretty easy. And then gradually, you build up to the full three miles, and it hits July, right? <laughs> and so you're out there, and you get home. And whereas you were getting home nice and dry and probably not out of breath at first, I get home now in the evening, and I am just dripping with sweat, right? And my, my, my shirt is saturated with sweat. Every part of me is saturated with sweat. It's pretty gross. It reminds me of the, have you ever seen the movie Along Came Polly? And they're playing basketball and Ben Stiller slaps up against this guy's chest. It's really sweaty as they're playing basketball. Horrible scene. Uh, <laughs> but if you want to come up to me and do that, you're like, oh, this is awful. Because I am saturated in sweat. I think it's a pretty terrible picture, but hopefully one that will stick in your mind of God wants us to be saturated in his word. Every aspect of our lives saturated in his word. Whether you have something on the wall that has scripture on in your house, whether you are constantly seeking to read God's word or listen to God's word or sing God's word or speak God's word to other people, shooting them a text or shooting them an email to encourage them, he wants you to be meditating on his word day and night. That is how we grow and how we become conformed to who God wants us to be, how we are formed as disciples. And then we will no more need to guess what God's will is. Often people walk around wondering, what is God's will for my life? Well, I would say that 99% of it is contained right within the words of scripture. And yet how many of us have ever read God's word? Been all the way through it, read it maybe four times or five times, or seek to read it daily. We need to spend time in God's Word so that we will know His will. You want to know what God thinks about families? Go to His Word. You want to know what He thinks about marriage or maybe sex? Go to God's Word. Maybe divorce or children or discipline or money or work. Go to God's Word. You want to know what He thinks about rest or eating or war, or politics, or taxes, or church, or the poor, or orphans, go to God's word. Saturate yourself in God's word, friends. Spend time in God's word each and every day. It is there. And he will use this time to conform us into his likeness if we will let him. Look at our gospel reading for today. Interesting story, isn't it? We don't often spend a lot of time in this story, and we won't have a ton today, but look at this story about Jesus. He's 12 years old, and where is he? Where is he? Yeah, in the temple in Jerusalem, and what's he doing? Yeah, he's he's maybe teaching, he's maybe learning as well, right? He's asking questions. I think he's saturating himself In God's word. He's spending time with others, meditating on God's God's word. Notice how that happens in community, right? Notice how that happens with other people too. You and I can't do this on our own. We need to spend time in God's word. And we need to recognize that it takes a long time to be conformed and shaped as God would have us be used. It's not an overnight thing. There's one of my kids, in particular in my family, whose name I will not mention, But whenever they start something new, they immediately think they're an expert at it right away. You may have kids like this, okay? Or maybe you're like this, I don't know. But they think immediately, yes, I have got this down. I am the world's greatest tennis player already. And then they go out and they play the sport. And what do they realize? Oh, I'm not. I've got to learn. I've got to practice if I want to be good. I've got to keep on practicing over and over again. And this is tedious. And so what do most people do? They quit, right? (laughs) They give up and they think, well, I'll try something else that I'll automatically be the expert at, okay? But there is no such thing. The same is true of being formed by God. It takes time over and over again, spending time in God's word, spending time with the Lord, doing things, doing the same disciplines over and over again, weekly life groups, weekly worship at church, weekly spending time reading books about who God is. Over and over again, He forms us. There are no shortcuts, friends. There are no shortcuts. You know, and as we notice with Jesus' formation, you know, it's a long process. And what does it ultimately end in? Death, right? It ends in death. It's not a process that leads to necessarily, I mean, eventually it does. It leads to this glorious end where he ascends and he's with the Father. But there's a point where it comes to he's being formed for his death that he will be able to submit to the point where he can die even death on a cross for you and for me. This is what discipleship leads to. It leads to death. Now, if anyone deserved a pain-free life full of no suffering, no sickness, no illness, it was Jesus. because He was sinless, friends, unlike you and me. And yet, what does he end up with? He ends up with the worst death possible. Friends, this is where discipleship leads. It leads to our death. Not necessarily physically uh, through um, crucifixion, but it leads to us dying to self. Jesus sets the example, doesn't he? Listen to this quote. An obedient, submissive inner spirit is a key to experiencing proper spiritual growth. Growth in favor with God and with men. When we submit our lives to God in scriptural terms, saying, here I am, send me, or presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, God's favor rests upon us. It takes obedience and submission. As we come to a close, I want to ask, what's forming you? What is primarily the thing that's forming you? Is it culture or is it Christ? Is it the world or is it God's word? I wonder, are you saturated in God's word throughout your day? If you're not, there's a good chance that culture and the world are winning the battle over your formation. And the problem is that due to this lack of us being formed by God's word and culture prevailing, we end up with all kinds of different theologies even within the church. I wanna run some of them by you. The first one is this. We might believe in the Santa Claus theology. If I'm good, God will bless my life, right? We might believe in that one. That's the Santa Claus theology. Many Christians believe God takes notes like Santa Claus. He's up there taking notes as a naughty and nice list, right? So that they can keep their behavior in check, hoping that God's gonna bless their life. They just keep on top of the nice list, right? It's what I call a transactional relationship. We have this idea that if I do this, God will do this for me. But the promise we have from God isn't that he'll give us stuff if we act right or just good things. The promise is he'll give us salvation if we put our trust in Jesus. It's a big difference, friends. The second one is called the Steve Jobs theology. If I work hard, I can do anything right? It's a very good American theology. America says we can do anything if we try hard, but God says we can do anything if we trust him. Big difference again. Yes, Christians should work hard, right? It's not wrong, and strive for excellence in their jobs, but any idea that we must work hard to earn God's love and work harder when times are difficult, well, it diminishes Jesus' work on the cross and our reliance in his grace. The third one is the Oprah theology. God just wants me to be happy. Just wants me to be happy, right? You know what, friends? I want to put it bluntly. God really isn't concerned about your happiness. Hear me? He really isn't concerned about your happiness. No, he wants something much more important. He wants to rid you of selfishness and give you life. Life to the full, friends. And the life God wants us to have isn't dependent on external circumstances. This life involves sacrifice. It involves seasons in the valley and a cross, But the end result of this life is peace that passes understanding and joy. Joy that perseveres through the darkest of seasons. The fourth one is the gated neighborhood theology. God just wants me to be safe and comfortable, right? Safe and comfortable. Nope. Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily. Does that sound safe and comfortable to you? I don't think that's safe and comfortable. The path Jesus treads to the cross was the antithesis of comfortable. It involved rejection, pain, humiliation, death. You cannot carry a cross without these things. The fifth one is the McDonald's theology or the supersize me theology. God won't give me more than I can handle size idea is that we'll never face more than we can handle. And it's utterly ridiculous, friends. You are going to face more than you can handle despite your best efforts. You really are. But here's the comforting promise from God. When life gives us more than we can handle, he will meet us in the mess. He will meet us right there in the mess. In the mess of our pain and our tears, he's going to be there. So let's stop believing that life won't give us more than we can handle. It can And it will, but when it does, God's presence will be near you. And the last one is the Broadway theology. I must put on a costume and act like I have it all together. Big smile, right? Got it all together. You know, Christians are sometimes the best actors on the planet. Our lives can be crashing down around us. But when we get around other Christians, we flash out our acting skills and everything looks great. The world is good. And in doing this, we miss the message of the gospel. When we cover up our brokenness, the world can't see that there's a healer. They can't see it. But if we allow others to see our brokenness, God opens his floodgates of grace and he shows it in us to others. Not only that, but our vulnerability and our weaknesses open the floodgates of God's love to a world that is desperate for this. Friends, when we are saturating God's word, these theologies start to fall away because we realize the truth of who God is forming us to be. We become useful for his kingdom's sake, for what we'll talk about next week, which is fulfilling his mission. We need to let go of these false beliefs and we need to reveal Christ to others through our words and our actions and our demeanors. You know, our witness matters. uh, Brennan Manning, who wrote the fantastic book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, wrote this. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. They might say to us, why would I want to love this God you claim to love? There is no difference in the way you think and the way that I think. And that means, friends, that we have a warning that we have not been transformed by the love and mercy of Jesus Christ as revealed on the cross for you and for me. Friends, let's be formed by Jesus, saturated in his word, that we might be of use for his kingdom's sake. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come move in our hearts. Lord Jesus, this is a hard word to swallow sometimes. And Lord, I pray that you would change me and change each one of us. Help us conform to your pattern, not the pattern of the world, that we might be of use for your kingdom's sake, that we might be willing to die to ourselves, to take up our cross daily and be disciples who are about making disciples in your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.